Blog Talk Radio. The opinions and views expressed by the host and guest are not necessarily the views and opinions of the Blake Radio Network. Broadcasting, broadcasting, broadcasting to the world. Broadcasting to the world, to the world, to the world. BlakeRadio.com. Music for your mind, body, and soul. Talk radio at its best. You're listening to Rainbow Soul. Well, the 
country mouse left with his city cousin who brought him to a splendid feast in the city's alley. The country mouse could not believe his eyes. He had never seen so much food in one place. There was bread and cheese and fruit, cereal, grains of all sorts, scattered about in a warm, cozy portion of the alley. The two mice settled down to eat their wonderful dinner, but before they barely took their first bite, a cat approached their dining area. The two mice scampered away and hid in a small, uncomfortable hole until the cat left. Finally, it was quiet, and the unwelcome visitor went to prowl somewhere else. The two mice ventured out of the hole and resumed their abundant feast. Before they could get a proper taste in their mouth, another visitor intruded into the dinner, and the two little mice had to scuttle away quickly. Goodbye, said the country mouse. You do indeed live in a plentiful city, but I'm going home where I can enjoy my dinner in peace. And the moral story is a modest life with peace and quiet is better than a rich one with danger and strife. Now, this type of subconscious programming of you keeps us settling for less when the better outcome really has a lower price because we fear the greater health will bring danger and strife. So let's compare the real price these mice pay, and then I'll draw the comparison in the area of health. Now, what really got me, my husband's a veterinarian, so he likes to watch all these YouTube videos of these animals. And I was noticing in all these YouTube videos, these animals were eating mice. And I thought to myself, man, those mice, those field mice have a tough, a tough time of it. So I asked them, I said, Gary, do, is, is, is it more dangerous for mice to live in the field in the country, or is it, is it safer in the, in the city uh, being a mouse in the house? He said, well, the house mouse, in the city with all the food has only really uh, two predators. One is the dog and the other one is the cat. And of course you can sometimes have maybe children or um, scared walls with uh, room. Let me close the window so we don't hear the dog. I figured we'd get some air because it's pretty hot here in Panama, but we'll have to handle that. So, it turns out then that the country mice actually has more strife in its life. Let's take a look at the predators that are going to eat this country mouse. So, the country mouse has got to worry about snakes, which are very efficient mice eaters, owls, which can eat, each owl can eat easily eight mice a day. Raptors like petrel, excipiters, red-tailed hawks, falcons, sparrow hawks, burrowing owls, the screech owl, bobcats, mountain lions, ferrets, minks, weasels, wolves, and wolves can eat 20 mice a day. Even bears eat mice. It's incredible. So this fable is actually based on a total, complete lie to get people to accept and believe that a modest life is going to have peace and quiet, and a rich life is going to have danger and strife. And because the translation, the abstract translation is, seeking uh, a better outcome or a superior result in anything is going to create danger and strife. We can just settle for average, settle for less. And this is seriously dangerous thinking, especially especially in healthcare. So we know then that this fable is absolutely false. 
that the country mouse actually has far more danger and far more strife than the city mouse. And this country mouse, for all of his modesty and poverty, actually also has more danger and strife. So there's, there's not an advantage, there's no inherent advantage in settling for less. So let's see the real price. Um, oh, let's talk about Aesop. Who's Aesop? Aesop is the person who wrote these stories. So Aesop's fables is what they're called. Now we have to remember Aesop was a slave. And his fables, while they're very entertaining, and maybe you can find something you think were wise and virtuous, they stress developing behaviors and beliefs that made life as a slave appear easier, more peaceful, and quieter. And so this is seriously important to understand. So these Aesop fables that we were innocently told as a child simply prepared us to be slaves, to be subservient, to subordinate our desires, subordinate our uh, best interests to that of some imagined uh, master. So if we translate this to health then, it would mean a life of disease and peace and quiet is better than a healthy one with danger and risk. Well, of course, that begs the question, what exactly could possibly be the peace and quiet of the illness? Well, you got a list, and I've heard these from, from my patients when I was practicing medicine. You can share your ailments and symptoms with your friends at McDonald's over breakfast. This really, really happened. It turned out that our McDonald's uh, in Syracuse was a gathering place for senior citizens in the morning. Uh, and in the mornings, they would have their coffee and egg muffin and donuts, and they would trade stories about their different ailments, whether it was diabetes or arthritis or high blood pressure. Also, if you are sick, then you have extra pills to show your friends. You can be a better friend. You can offer your friends support, since you've heard the same thing from your doctor. Also, you can be like everyone else. It's a shared consciousness. And uh, you can have your child attend a government propaganda school in exchange, of course, for getting shots. And if he's filled with autism-causing and mind-dulling vaccines, this makes it easier for him to absorb the clearly nonsensical propaganda in schools. Also, you get no criticism from government-licensed nurses, no visits from government-employed child protective workers, and of course, you get to hold on to that uh, that job, I have to say. Now, many people are not aware that the average self-employed individual in the United States actually earns $100,000 a year. And the average employed person earns $50,000 a year. And no, all those benefits don't really add up to $50,000. Then, of course, you have the approval of your doctor. The doctor says, oh, you're a good patient. Oh, you're doing everything right. And you also have to approve of your friends and relatives. You know, it's going to give you grief for having a baby at home. No one's going to give you grief for not showing up for checkups. And everyone knows how to show you they care. They can just take you to a doctor's appointment or run an errand in pharmacy. For your, and for you, life is predictable. Your symptoms will worsen, and you will take more and more drugs. And the grandkids, as you get older, of course, will help out. 
and you have the confidence knowing your actions conform with every public service announcement. This makes it a real of real comfort. And you also feel responsible because you're doing the responsible thing. You're doing as you're told. So there is the implied, this false guarantee, that you will be cared for as a result of your conformity. The very doctor who harms you will complete your disability papers. And you also have a feeling of belonging to a larger group that's following the same tune. And of course, you can qualify to use the handicapped parking space. But wait, what about the danger of disease? Well, this is pretty clear. Day by day, you can do less and less. The pain's waking at night. Turning in bed is an athletic event. You can no longer travel because you have too many electronic devices that you depend on. And your life becomes more and more limited. But wait, there's also a danger then and a risk of being healthy. Now this is the stress of success that the country mouth or those who live make uh, lives avoid. You don't have a doctor demanding to know why you're not taking more medications at your age. You have the government tracking you down to vaccinate you. You don't have friends scorning you because you don't have the illnesses they have. And what's the upside of better health? Well, it's got to be a good side, right? Simply, feeling great. You feel great and you have less expenses on health care. Even if you choose to spend money on health insurance, unless you feel great because you're healthy, you don't spend money on the deductible and the co-pays. And also, you have more time for your enjoyment. Less medical-related visits, no side effects, because, of course, you don't have therapy because you're healthy. And no stress of hearing the next false positive result of the screening test because, well, you don't get them. And you can keep your sex organs for your whole life. You're able to do things you enjoy, like spending time with the grandchildren, traveling. So let's see how people settle for secondary results as they try to be prudent and fear uh, reaching for the goal and really being as healthy as they can possibly be. The most obvious thing is people accept a number and not an outcome. So people accept a number. So what's the number they accept? They accept a cholesterol number, for example. And so they ask the doctor, well, what's my number? What's my number coming now? Rather than saying, I'm taking this cholesterol drug, I've been taking it for three months, and I don't feel any better. So people are, are actually afraid to request the outcome. Instead, they settle for a number, they settle for a process. And of course, the thing they ask if you're taking this drug is doctor. When can I expect to see benefit? When can I expect to see results? And for a cholesterol drug, the doctor, if he's read the package answer, he can tell you it'll be 1,250 years before you realize the benefits from the cholesterol drug. The next number that people accept is hemoglobin A1C. Many doctors tell people, well, we want to normalize your hemoglobin A1C, and the lower the better. And this is what the patient is told. But the reality is, normalizing your hemoglobin A1C, if you're diabetic, actually increases your chances of death. And so normalizing your Hemoglobin A1C is this, this number, is actually not beneficial, does not translate 
into a longer life does not translate into a healthier life. And so people who feel they should be uh, meek, they should not ask questions, they should not demand more, suffer. Because, again, they settle for this number. They seem to go with A1C number. Now, of course, the other thing to ask about uh, diabetes is NNT. Numbers needed to treat. Say, doctor, how many people do you have to treat for diabetes before you save one life? Hey, doctors will tell you, well, I don't know. And if you look it up and look at the studies, and you look at studies um, saving lives with diabetes, Take 714 years of therapy. So you have to treat 714 people uh, for one year each before one diabetic lives even one day longer. That's pretty impressive. And most people, even under the best circumstances, do not live 714 years. And again, many people are afraid to ask this question, why? Fear of not being a good patient. Fear of not being a good slave. And this seriously compromises people's health. What's another number? The number is blood pressure. Now there's an interesting number. The question then is what about blood pressure? Uh, people, again, because they are trying to avoid the danger, the inconvenience, the uh, embarrassment or social pressure of demanding uh, results. They settle for a number of doctors, my blood pressure under control. And the doctor might say, yes, the medicine's working, the blood pressure is, is getting lower, it's getting lower. But what does that mean? Well, that means that less blood is getting to the brain. Of course, the next question is, doctor, how much longer will I live because I'm following your orders? How much longer will I live because I'm taking these drugs? And the answer for hypertensive therapy, the honest answer is not one minute longer. There's no evidence that people who are treated for high blood pressure live any longer than people who are not treated for high blood pressure. So this is uh, this is the price. This is the price people pay for settling for a number and not an outcome. So doctor, I have high blood pressure. You've treated my high blood pressure and I feel worse. I feel dizzy. I, I, I'm impotent. I have no energy. And so this is what people would demand or ask if they were not following this parable. So this parable, uh, this Aesop's fable, basically uh, gets people to be slaves, slaves to the medical system, slaves to the doctor's edict. And so this is really, this is huge because this is totally ingrained in people at a very young age, literally at their mother's knee, 
as they read uh, Aesop's fables. And it turns out that standing up and saying, you know what, doctor, I really appreciate all this, but I have to go now. And so there really is, in medical therapy, there is absolutely uh, no advantage, none whatever, to settling for modest results or no results because you want peace and quiet instead of insisting on results and being fearful of danger and strife. Now, another thing to fear is what if, if I turn away from the doctor, then where will I go? I'll be on my own. I'll have to make my own decisions. And again, the doctor is trained and such lethal and uh, deadly practices that exercising your own judgment is actually a very good thing, actually a superior thing. And so the thing to focus on then is results in that process cure and not treatment. And never accept any therapy that's the last hope or that's better than nothing. And better than nothing means at least we can go for it. And so you should at least ask these questions. At least ask the question, how long will it take for me to benefit? How long will it take this to cure me? And I've talked to people who said, well, Dr. Daniels, you know, I went to this specialist, I went to that specialist, I took medication for uh, five years, and finally I asked the doctor, when will I get better? And he said, oh, you'll never get better. There is no cure for your condition. That was the uh, reflex sympathetic dystrophy. And so if you just ask, the doctors will tell you, they'll tell you, oh, there's no cure. Oh, you're never going to feel better. But we can at least give you this treatment and, um, you know, process bills to your insurance company. Since, I mean, you do have insurance, you might as well use it. And, again, ask the question. So the doctor tells you that there's zero chance of you ever getting better, and the therapy he's giving you is not going to help you get better. That's a fancy way for saying the therapy is ineffective, which means all you're getting is what? The damaging side effects. So there's not any therapeutic benefit. But again, simply asking the question is, is such a huge, uh, a huge benefit. Now, what else uh, happens? So, the, the other issue is there's and the annual exam. And the annual exam. This is really amazing. Uh, when I went to medical school, we were taught to do the annual exam. And the annual exam is a physical exam you do on somebody who basically has no disease. And certain places in their body you drop the prod and poke and questions you're supposed to ask. And 
I'm so excited about learning how to do the complete physical exam and getting it right and being thorough and not missing a thing. And then, of course, I was just so enthusiastic and so excited. I just couldn't contain myself. And I said, wow, if we get our patients to all do physical exams, annual exams, it'll be a help for all of them. It'll help them live longer and, and, and help us catch disease early and cure them. And the instructor says, ah, no, 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 stop, 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 stop. Not so fast. You're getting ahead of yourself. This physical exam, this annual exam, there's absolutely no evidence that the annual physical exam increases the amount of time that anybody lives or increases the quality of life. And when you think that it's at the annual physical exam that healthy people are started on cholesterol medications, that have a side effect rate of 30% per year, you realize that this annual exam can be a pretty dangerous encounter. And then when you consider that many of these same cholesterol medications cause strokes in 10% of everyone who takes them every year, it's like, whoa, this annual exam is not shaken up to be too cool. So unfortunately though, people seeking a modest life of peace and quiet will go and get their annual exam. Why? They don't want their spouse to complain that they haven't got an annual exam. So what do you do? You say, hi, I'm going to see the doctor to get my annual exam, and maybe, you know, go play a round of golf or, you know, whatever, entertain yourself. And then come back and say, yep, doctor said all is clear, I'm going to clean bill of health. You know, whatever you have to do to avoid that annual encounter, it's really important. Because again, by the doctor's own confession, the medical industry itself says that the annual physical exam does not extend life, does not increase the quality of life. There you have it. What about all these screening tests? You know, you're 50, you get your colonoscopy. Um, if you're a man or woman, if you're a woman, you start getting your mammograms. Unless, of course, you want to make really sure when you start at 40. So what do all these screening tests do? Even by the medical industry's own admission, all these screening tests do is give a disease label to healthy people. And we have a scientific name for this. It's called uh, creating false positives, which sounds pretty neutral. But when you say it, it labels healthy people as sick, when indeed they're not sick, and for a woman, what this means is basically you get both breasts cut off when, in fact, you were healthy and these breasts would never have created a problem in your natural lifetime. So these screening tests are definitely a case of settling for less, settling for a process that will create a modest life with no breasts, uh, peace and quiet, rather than a rich life with all of your body parts uh, into retirement and, you know, the rest of your life. Uh, one example I'd like to give is um, in medical school we were taught that one sign of breast cancer is one breast being a different size from the other breast. Now, having done a lot of breast exams uh, in my career, I can tell you most women have one breast larger than the other breast. That's just part of being a healthy, normal woman. 
And so what we doctors have been given, and women have too, is criteria of health to be used as instead a criteria for disease. And so again, you need to step out and take that um, chance and say, you know what? I'm going to live a rich life, rich in health, with all of my body parts, and I'm going to endure the imaginary danger and strife of people around me um, possibly crying and weeping for me, of course, prematurely. Another thing uh, that I experienced, which I was really shocked at, is I was pretty young, I was 40-something, and um, my practice was coming to an end, but I decided I would go to this luncheon I'd been invited to, and of course it was the Pink Ribbon Luncheon for Breast Cancer. And these ladies were like really, really hardcore. Um, and they had people talk who had survived breast cancer, people spoke who had gotten their breast cut off just in case, and it was really big kind of group thing about, you know, let's, let's get our breasts before they get us. And so I was vegan at the time, and uh, my breasts were extremely, extremely flat, because of course there's no animal input to stimulate their growth in terms of my diet. And so someone turned to me and said, oh, Dr. Daniel, you've had your mastectomy? I said, no, I, I, don't, I, don't have a, I haven't had a mastectomy. He says, oh, you haven't had your mastectomy yet? Well, yeah, I felt like I was just, uh, I mean, it was like not having a fashionable hairdo or something or, or some social faux pas that, of course, everyone knows you have to go get your mastectomy. I was actually shocked. I was speechless. I could not even think of a response. All I could do was just confess that I hadn't had a mastectomy. And, uh, but this is the pressure people are facing. Uh, the go along, get along, modest life of peace and quiet filled with torture, mutilation, and disfigurement. And so people are given this choice. And when it's framed this way, oh, I'm going to have a modest life with uh, no breath and no uterus, and it'll be filled with peace and quiet because I don't have to worry about my uterus and breath causing disease. It's better than a life with the full use of my um, gender-specific organs laced with the danger and strife that one day they might turn on me and become a disease thing. So this is the indoctrination people have, and it leads them to rush into, as I said, torture, mutilation, and even murder. The certain percent of people who go into the hospital, and only 1%, um, actually end up uh, dying as a result of their hospitalization. And that's not trivial, it's, and that's uh, substantial. Now the next thing that people submit to in the name of healthcare is uh, a, a pap smear. 
Now, those of you who are God probably don't understand that the pap smear is an incredibly humiliating experience, generally unpainful, uh, generally um, uncomfortable, and often painful. And when you think that your chances of having anything wrong are, well, first of all, your chance of dying of what they're looking for is less than six in 100,000. That's pretty, uh, that's pretty shocking. In other words, what they are looking for um, barely exists. I mean, there are women who do die of cervical cancer. However, the number is so minuscule that even if you concede that women who get pathways have half as much cervical cancer as women who don't, the actual numerical size of the reduction is, is really minuscule. Then, if you look at the World Health Organization figures, they indicate that women, a well-screened population of women who get their pap smears and everything, they will not get cervical cancer, but they get other cancers. And so then you're not saving any lives at all. You still have the cancer death rate. So, again, uh, you know, a modest life with conformity, peace, quiet, torture, rape, and mutilation, possibly even murder, or a rich one with excitement and happiness. And again, with the fable, they throw in danger and strife. And the danger and strife is actually in going to the pap smear appointment, getting the pap smear done, being confronted with, with false positive results, which 99.99% of pap smear results are false positive. In other words, they tell you that you have something that requires intervention, but actually you certainly don't have cancer. And so a lot of freezing and chopping and all kinds of things take place in the name of prevention, when actually it's not clear um, that there's a material impact in this lady's life. In other words, the woman may not get um, cervical cancer, but perhaps she'll get breast cancer. And so this is a huge, huge issue. Then we have something called the well-child visit. The well-child visit uh, was something that was, uh, I guess, invented a long time ago, but I became aware of it in medical school. as well-child visit. This is shocking to me that a parent would need a doctor to tell them the child is healthy. If the child eats, runs, and plays, that's pretty much the size of it. Um, you know, it, it's pretty straightforward that the kids uh, kids healthy, and so we were uh, trained, of course, that we have to measure the kids' height and weight and height circumference, graph it out on a graph, and then confront the parents with the dismal news that their child is below average. And then, of course, you have uh, mom is five foot two and dad is five foot four. Well, what's the kid going to be? Well, certainly his height is going to be below average. And so, what does that mean to this family? Absolutely nothing. Not a sign of disease um, at all. And so, again, 
And this creates a situation where the parents are sometimes even pushed into getting more tests done, endocrine tests done to see why the kid is so small. Well, of course, the answer is right in front of you. Mom and dad are small. And, of course, what else happens at the well child business? Vaccines happen. And what happens then is we have a intervention, in this case I'm going to call it vaccine, that creates disease and makes children sick. In my medical practice, um, I stopped giving vaccines pretty early on. I don't think I even gave them for, for six months. Now, I might have given them for a year. And finally, I just said, no, I'm not doing it. I'm not going to torture children in my medical practice. I am not going to stab them and um, torture them and, and, and make them fearful unnecessarily. And so when I stopped giving immunization in my medical practice, I was able to track people who got immunizations that would go to the clinic or wherever to get immunizations, and then the ones who did not get immunizations. The ones who did not get immunizations they basically had a disease-free childhood. And I was surprised, I was shocked, like, oh my God, these um, interventions that we doctors are trained to administer are actually making people sick. And so you have the well-child visit which actually makes the child sick. Now, the problem that we have in the United States in terms of being a responsible parent is if you um, have a child born in the hospital and that child is automatically registered with a Social Security number, a lot of times the hospitals will do that for you as a favor, then that child becomes documented and is on the record. And if they pair up the immunization with the social security number, then what you've got is a tracking system. Well, I say, wait a minute, this child has not been vaccinated. Where is this child? We need to find this child is vaccinated. And that's what we get on the Indian reservation that I worked at in uh, Northern Wisconsin. We had a 100% record of every single child born to every Indian woman. Why? Because the Indian woman wanted to get what they perceived to be financial benefits from the um, U.S. government, of course, owed to them under treaty. And so what they did unwittingly was they registered their children. And this meant that their children were in the database and could be and were tracked down wherever they were in the world. And the parents were asked to produce evidence of vaccination. And if they didn't, then the kid was vaccinated. And if the kid was vaccinated, and even if he did not have a record of it or was actually vaccinated, he was vaccinated again and again and again. And there are children who literally got three sets of vaccines. So it's really um, an issue. And so the thing to do then, of course, to avoid this is to have the child at home. Now, many people say, oh my God, uh, that's a terrible thing. Uh, having a child at home isn't that risky. So let's compare. I have a grandmother who had 12 pregnancies. 
Of those 12 pregnancies, she had two stillbirths and 10 live births. Okay. She had no prenatal care. All the babies were at home. They were either unattended or poorly attended, I'm sure. So let's compare this with a modern-day uh, woman. A modern-day woman, um, by the medical industry's own estimate, she gets pregnant and she gets prenatal care. She's a 27% chance of losing this baby in the first trimester. So there's something that happens when women get prenatal care early that increases the first trimester loss. This is shocking. Okay, so we would then say with grandma that she would have had 27% fewer children just on that basis, just on that basis. And so then the modern woman, uh, who herself was probably vaccinated, would at best have two or three children. So where's the outcome? We have grandma with 10 children and 12 pregnancies. And we have the modern day lady who has to have three pregnancies on average in order to get two children. And so clearly, grandma had a better deal. Because if mom, grandma had been working with the uh, regular system, she would have had nine kids born alive instead of 10 kids born alive. And if she had the infertility issue, she certainly wouldn't have had 10. She would have had, of course, what our modern-day ladies have, which is something closer to two. So it turns out that even with the numbers game, however you want to count it, um, having a baby yourself unattended by the medical care system at the end of the day, does not lead to fewer live births. But because we are trained to look at infant mortality, which by the way, grandma's infant mortality was zero because the babies were not born alive, which didn't count. Um, we don't look at other more relevant numbers, which is how many pregnancies does it take to get one live birth or one healthy child at age one year. And in the United States, that number is, is pretty darn high. But you've got the 27% loss in the first trimester, and then on top of that, you've got the infant mortality uh, further down the line. So it turns out that the results with or without medical intervention, one cannot make a case for benefit of medical intervention. And again, this is a case where people are given the impression that if they receive all this intervention, that the outcome will be better, in which case, of course, it's not. <laughs> now, the next thing to look at is um, parents are told that if they fail to vaccinate, then the child will not be allowed to attend uh, the government-run propaganda schools. And people are told that if they do not get vaccinated, they will not be allowed to continue in their employment. And so we have to take a look at this. It, it turns out that homeschoolers actually have higher academic achievement than people who are schooled in public schools or private schools for that matter. And 
I don't think we can attribute this to the intelligence of the parents. I've talked to many, talked to many homeschoolers, myself included, that have said, well, he seems to have an interest in that area, so we got more books for him. And the kid just actually taught himself. My son had an interest in computers. He taught himself all about computers. He knows far more about them than I do. And far more than any school uh, would have taught him. So he uh, was homeschooled up until age 13, 14 years of age. So then he went to, uh, he went to school. And the school had a library, and the library had lots of computers. And so he figured out how to put the computers on a separate network that could not be supervised by the librarian. And so all the kids could communicate with each other and play video games, group video games. And um, they had to bring in a computer expert from, um, from downtown, from the Board of Education, to attempt to fix the situation. Not far, I think they finally had to go to Albany, which is uh, another city, the capital of New York, to find a computer specialist that could undo what he had done. Now, obviously, he had to do that in school. And although I'd like to take credit for being a great homeschooler, he taught himself that you know, playing with computers at home. So a lot of people worry that their children, if they don't go to public school, will be missing something. And the answer is, of course, they will be missing something, but it won't be anything good. And so a lot of times when the system tries to intimidate you by withholding what might be or what is represented as a goodie, um, the value of that goodie that's being withheld is really just about zero. Totally useless. And so you should always be a little suspicious when someone says, well, if you don't submit to this piece of brutality, then uh, you can't have a certain privilege. And you have to ask yourself, what really is that privilege worth? And usually it's worth just about nothing. Uh, remember when we, uh, we were kids, of course, I grew up uh, in the inner city, all black neighborhood. There were a few elderly white people living in houses, but all the young people were uh, African American. And so before the civil rights movement, there was this incredible, extreme, extreme suspicion of the government. And so it was believed that anything the government handed out, whether they gave it away free or whether they stole it, was second rate and should be avoided. That was the gold standard. Something happened after the civil rights movement. Uh, not quite sure what it was, but it, it wasn't good. But these are the things people can do if they simply abandon the Aesop's fable, uh, how to be a good slave mentality, and instead decide that they have a right to heal, that they have a right to feel better, they have a right to be healthy. And so how do you exercise this, this right? First of all, uh, rights are not something that the government gives you. Rights are just something that you exercise. For example, the right to breathe, you just breathe, you know, deep breath in. And so the right then to escape a torture, mutilation, and possible murder, you exercise that by doing things yourself. 
you exercise that by uh, not looking for a consensus, not looking to the opinions of others, but relying on your body. It's like, okay, I just got this drug from the doctor. Uh, I decided to take it, maybe you have, and I don't feel better. Well, there you go. There's your proof. That's it. Done. And whether the next guy taking the drug feels better, well, that's great for him. Maybe he should take the drug. That's cool. But insist on uh, a concrete outcome. And that concrete outcome would be feeling better, living longer, uh, being disease-free. And so those are the measures that um, you would use to guide your activity in terms of health. And if someone offers you a prize that's not health, for example, if you get these immunizations, you can go to school. If you get this immunization, you can keep your job. Like, well, 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 there's only one reason for medical intervention, and that's because it's going to improve my health. And so if the incentive you're being given does not involve better health, then you need to reject it because that's the only criteria, that's the only measuring stick. If you use that as your only measuring stick, then you'll be in pretty good shape. And you can and ask the question. The question is, how many people need to take this drug before somebody feels feels better? And how long do I need to take this drug before I experience the benefit? And ask them, what is the benefit? And so if the benefit is just a lower number, then you're not interested. If the benefit is a longer life, a happier life, a life with more health, well, okay, now we can talk. All right, so that's my benefit. And, and when, when should that benefit show up? Those are the types of questions that you need to limit yourself to and not be um, flim-flammed by the concept of modest health with peace and quiet being better than a life rich with health. Because it isn't. Nothing beats feeling good. There is just no substitute for feeling good. Uh, none. And so that is the criteria. Um, now many people say, well, you know, these tests detect diseases early, the doctor does. Those tests, are calibrated based on groups of healthy people and they're staying healthy. So feeling good is actually the same criteria as the tests were based on. And so you can just have your own little test, you, and say, I'm gonna feel good. That's my guess. That's my uh, that's my standard. Now we're ready to take questions. If you're listening on the air, you can click one for questions. Um, also, I'd like to remind people that we have the um, monthly Q&A coming up. Those of you who have not signed up for that, um, you can sign up and be a member. Right now we have the introductory uh, price of $9.95. And um, 
you can sign up for that. Also, people who have more um, detailed problems can go to, or concerns, can go to vitalitycapitals.com and click on um, discovery sessions at the top or or one-on-one. Okay, we have some questions. So let's see what these questions are. Okay, I have two siblings who are being treated for heart ailments and high blood pressure. They felt sick. What could they have done if not go to the doctor? Okay. Uh, what they could have done uh, if not go to the doctor is they could have changed their diet. And uh, diet is very effective in bringing down blood pressure. Um, depending on the drugs that they're, let's just say they weren't on any drugs, right? They, they're just... Uh, had high blood pressure. There are very effective herbs that help uh, lower the blood pressure. And so most people, once they fall ill, if you want to look at it that way, they can become extreme experts in any field, usually about three or four hours of uh, surfing the internet. Because that's really about all the doctor gets in terms of uh, instruction in any one affliction. So doctor gets three hours of instruction in hypertension, three hours of instruction in diabetes, and so on and so on. So that um, that's what they could have done. So what can they do now? Now they can go to vitalitycapsules.com and sign up for a discovery session uh, for assistance. Well, really not for assistance, but just uh, to investigate um, if it might be something that they want uh, further help with or guidance with. All right. So many people have that me-first attitude these days that those who settle for less somehow see it as noble. Absolutely, and that is a real problem. What people need to understand is the me-first attitude is totally appropriate when it comes to health care. Totally appropriate. Uh, you cannot base your health care decisions on someone else's experiences. It doesn't make sense. And also, you need to not allow your health to be compromised over a number. You need to not become a victim of a low hemoglobin A1C. You not, need to not become a victim of blood pressure medications that have deprived your kidneys and brain of oxygen in blood, causing you to either get um, kidney dialysis or Alzheimer's. So you need to absolutely put yourself first when it comes to your health care. Now, when it comes to other things, you may want to be magnanimous. You may want to... Um, set aside a portion of your income to help the grandkids out or do this or do that or put other people first and that's great but in your health care your own personal health care is absolutely no place for that doctors make you afraid isn't that terrorism absolutely is terrorism it's absolutely terrorism and one example of this is when people go to the doctor and they have something called white coat hypertension basically the subconscious is saying you're in danger. Get out of here. Run. And the person sits there and says, oh, doctor, is it white coat hypertension or do we need to have medicine for this? And so your subconscious is actually telling you that you are really, really in danger. So um, it's absolutely terrible. Now, do doctors know that they're making you afraid? You know, a lot of doctors don't because what doctors tell you, these are lines that they are told to tell you. 
they are given these, this information. They're told to say these things. And I would say these lines, and I would just see the person's face turn pale. And I'd say to myself, no, 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 we don't need to worry. But again, so it took a lot to reconfigure these lines. And even I would say to the patient, look, this is what I was taught to say in medical school. There. Now, this is what I think. And you can just choose what you want to do. And so that helped people um, not give in to their conditioning. Um, because this conditioning with the ASOS fable is just the beginning. It's conditioning at a very early age to get you to accept uh, second rate in every aspect of your life, including your health care. Then uh, from that, the commercial set in. Then the, if you really love yourself, you'll have them get a colonoscopy. I was speechless when I was talking to a couple here in Panama, and the woman said that a colonoscopy was her husband's 50th birthday present. I'm like, <laughs> you know, it's better things to do on your 50th birthday. So, you know, it absolutely is terrorism. Where is the terrorism coming from? It's definitely coming from some planning agency um, contemplated certainly by the um, marketing gurus. And the words are, are picked rather precisely. And the doctors are trained to say these words. And so as a human being interested in being healthy, you've got to realize this is what's going on. As the as young kids would say, you know, you're being played. And so you have to decide the simplest way is just not walk into the lines then. It's far easier not to enter the lines then than to uh, attempt to escape when all the doors are locked. So this is a real huge one, like don't show up. The other thing people should know, like just for their own information, is the average American lives to be about 79 years old. So if you are over 74, then you have, there's no benefit to medical therapy. Most medical therapies take anywhere from 5 to 20 years to kick in, at least. So that would be your blood pressure therapy, your cholesterol therapy. So the next one is, my great-grandmother lived to about 90 with no drugs for her diabetes. Yep, that's it. No evidence that those drugs extend life. <laughs> I looked into Arnold Everett water fasting. I'm starting it, but wonder what will be the effects on, of insulin if I should stop my insulin. Huh. If you take insulin while you fast, it will kill you. Forget it. So don't do that. All right. So moving on over to drjennifergandos.com forward slash monthly dash questions and learn about the question and answer session that I'll be having. All right. Great. Well, that is the end of today's show. And we will see you again next week.